We've been working our way through the, the Gospel of Mark. But um, before I do that, I can't pass up that yesterday was a very significant anniversary. Anybody know for this nation? Anyone know what the significance of yesterday's date was? Hockey. Hockey. 40-year 40, 40 anniversary of the United States miracle on ice hockey win over the Soviet Union in the 1980 Winter Olympics at Lake Placid. Okay. So I wasn't around. It looked something like this. I was around. I just wasn't paying attention. I don't think I even knew there were Winter Olympics that, that back then. But against all odds, for those of you who are under 40, um, against all odds, a group of mostly amateur players from the United States defeated a Soviet, Un Soviet Union team that had won five of the previous six Olympic gold medals. That moment is etched in history. I read an interview where the captain of the team, Mike Urizion, um, who scored the winning goal, made this comment. He said, the stories I hear, and obviously he hangs out with a particular group of people, but um, he says, the, the stories I hear, 40 years later, depending on their age, people say things like, I remember where I was when Kennedy was assassinated. I remember where I was on 9-11. I remember where I was when Challenger blew up. And I remember where I was when we won the miracle on ice. You may or may not put that in the same category. Now, the miracle on ice didn't, didn't end the Cold War. But for those players, that moment changed everything. Even as a, as a nation, um, we know what the phrase miracle on ice means for most of us. Uh, the, that there's a story that goes with it that's it's a significant moment. And... and and it is such a significant moment that at the same Olympics, an American speed skater won an unprecedented five gold medals in speed skating. He won every speed skating race that was on offer at those Olympics. Um, from a sprint to a marathon, he won them all. And you all know his name, right? So. <laughs> but, but the thing you know is not even the gold medal game of those Olympics. I mean, I, if, if I had you write down on your card, who did the United States defeat in the gold medal game of the 1980 Olympics? A couple of people would get it. But most of us would say, I thought the Miracle on Ice was the gold medal game. But it was only the bronze. It was the, the playoff to get to the gold medal. But that moment, the significance of that moment eclipsed everything else about those Olympics. Moments. They can change everything. When those Olympics started, no one anticipated. Even if they anticipated that particular matchup, no one anticipated that it would result in a U.S. victory. No one anticipated that the United States amateur and college players could come from behind and defeat the mighty Soviet team. No one could predict that moment. 
And you have key moments in your past that have shaped your trajectory. I'm here today because one person, a lot of years ago, said, hey, Peter, can we have lunch together? I went out on my lunch break from an accounting job, and 22 years later, I'm standing in front of you in Rochester, New York. I had no idea, even on that Sunday when he said, can we have lunch together, that I would end up here, that it was even a possibility that I could end up here. And you have those moments in your life. They may not seem as stark as the red pill, blue pill scene in the the Matrix, but the job that you accepted, the person that you didn't date, the college that you enrolled in, the moment you decided to retire, that time that you chose to tell the truth or to not tell the truth, those moments are part of who you are today. And if you'd made different choices, you'd be a different person. You may be in a different place with different people. Not necessarily better person or a worse person, but a different person because those moments matter. And you can't tell which moment it is. You can't tell when you drive into church on any given Sunday, 52 Sundays out of a year, you can't tell which of those 52 Sundays you're going to hear something that may change your life. You you don't know that, because if you did, you'd plan to be here for that Sunday, right? (laughs) And you don't know which Sundays you've missed that could have changed your life. Because we don't predict those moments. We can't predict those decisions and those outcomes. Now, Jesus' life was filled with moments. He healed people. He cast out demons. He fed thousands of people. He challenged the religious establishment. And at the end of of Mark chapter 4, after Mark has been telling this story, telling the things that Jesus is doing, he calms a storm in the middle of the night and his disciples ask this question that must have appeared on their lips time after time. Who is this? Who is this? I mean, they started following Jesus because they respected him, because they admired him, because John the Baptist pointed them towards him, because they liked his message, because they had hopes and dreams, and they followed him. But how many times did they see him do something say something and and say, who is this? Which is very similar but different from the question that the Pharisees and the religious leaders asked and their question was, who does he think he is? Who does he think he is doing that, saying that? And so, two different questions sort of arising from the same set of circumstances. 
And over the last few weeks, as we've looked at chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, Jesus seems to be constantly on the move from one place to another place, filling our pages with teaching and with miracles as he goes. It's an action-packed beginning to this gospel story. And, And along the way, he gives us these moments. Perhaps it's the story where he's going from uh, he, he lands on the boat, he meets the synagogue leader, and the synagogue leader says, my daughter is dying. Come and help her. And, and then even just as he's along the way, there's a woman that has a health issue, and she has her moment that changes her life, that, that Jesus doesn't even realize that, that he's doing it as she just touches him. And then he says, whoa, what did I do? What did I do? Who touched me? Because that moment transformed her life and Jesus' power was such that he didn't even realize what was happening. And and then just as he's on his way to somewhere else and then he learns that the child is dead and he's able to to go and to uh, resuscitate her anyway. Jesus has these moments that, that ask the question, who is this? And now in... In chapter 8, which was read for us earlier, and you can just open your Bible and keep it there. In, in chapter 8, and verse 22, Jesus is about to turn up the heat on the twelve, those closest to him. This is their moment. Jesus actually, well, the first thing he does is he heals a, a blind man. And uh, Mark has this way of, of telling about a miracle, and the miracle provides a lens for understanding what comes next. And in this healing of the blind man, it's a a two-stage miracle. Jesus starts the the healing, and the, the blind man says, well, I could see people, but they're like trees. Maybe he hadn't been blind from birth. Perhaps he knew what people looked like and knew what trees looked like. And so Jesus then touches him again and heals him completely. But that idea of partially seeing what's going on, the idea of partially recognizing what's going on, becomes a great analogy for the stories that we're going to see. That the blind man's physical sight was partially restored and then fully restored. And the, we're going to see that the disciples' spiritual sight is a lot like that. A lot like that. And so Jesus heals this blind man, but then he takes the twelve and, and Caesarea Philippi, right? You all know where that is in relation to Jerusalem. Um, or not. I, I know, geography is like one of those, biblical geography is one of those things like we hear these names all the time and We don't always appreciate their significance. Jesus takes them, in a sense, on a a spiritual retreat. They go north again, away from Galilee, away from Jerusalem, into Gentile, more Gentile territory. And so he heads north, and along the way, he asks his 12, away from the Pharisees, away from the scribes, he says to them, who do people say that I am? What have you been hearing? Well, I'm up at the front, and you guys are sort of hanging out at the back of the room. You ever been in a room like that? The elders and deacons are sort of just hovering around the 
out back of a crowd making sure everything's you know the way it's supposed to be people have what they need and uh, and and that's what the 12 are doing and and Jesus says now who are those people what are those conversations taking place out there who are they saying that I am and the 12 kind of gives some standard replies you know oh, some people think you're John the baptizer maybe his successor or come back from the dead some people think you're Elijah uh, some other maybe some other prophet maybe prophet from the Old Testament maybe a new prophet just some other prophet maybe you're something like that and then Jesus says oh well that's good I'm glad people are thinking but he turns the heat up he says, now, who do you, who do you, what about you? Who do you say I am? This is their moment. They weren't expecting this. They weren't expecting Jesus to be putting the spotlight on them. They were his closest friends. They followed him around. They were with him always. What are you stressing me out like that, Jesus? What if I give the wrong answer? What if I, I don't pass this test? Like, why are, you, why are you doing this to me? I'm uncomfortable with this. I don't like conflict and confrontation, Jesus. Because they've been following him for months, maybe for years. They've heard and they've seen everything that Jesus has said and done. And their answer is going to have consequences. This isn't just an answer to a test question, a question on a quiz. Because if Jesus is the next John the baptizer, even if he's Elijah back from the dead, then Jesus will only ever serve as they do as a signpost that God is going to do something great in the future. If Jesus is on a level with John the baptizer, he's on a level with Elijah, then he will be pointing forward to God doing something in the future. Because that was their function. The disciples certainly will be closer to God for having spent that time with Jesus. Their lives will be different and better and more spiritual. But they would still be waiting for God to do something greater. And they may or may not be around to see whatever that greater is. And so their answer has consequences. But Peter makes the statement. He answers, you are the Messiah. Presumably, when he says this, he speaks for the other 11 also because they've had this conversation. Not only have they been on the edges of the crowd listening, They've had those conversations. Remember, they're the ones who asked that question. Who is this? You don't think they got off the boat and had a conversation about that a little bit more? Like, did we dream that? Did that really happen? How did he do that? Who is this? And so, this is their conclusion. You are the Messiah. That's another way of saying you are the Christ. Another way of saying you are the anointed one. All of those terms fit that. Now Peter didn't understand what that meant. It's a word, that description has been around for centuries. But whatever the exact form this 
man of God, this Messiah, this anointed one was going to take, whatever he was going to do, that Messiah was going to be the climax of God's work in history, certainly in the history of Israel. This was the moment. This was the man that Israel had anticipated for those centuries. And suddenly, everything changed. I don't know if it's suddenly everything changed for the twelve, but suddenly everything changed for Jesus in that moment. Because instead of demonstrating who he was, now he must prepare the twelve for why he was. And, and in the book of Mark, in the way that Mark has written it and constructed it, this is the center point. This is the pivot on which the whole book swings. And we see that in the very next verse. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. That's a change. That's a bit of a shock. And this upsets Peter. And, and I think we, we, we look at Peter and we say, Peter, what are you doing rebuking Jesus? He's Jesus. You can't do that. Um, I mean, I think that's a fair point. But, I mean, they've traveled with Jesus. They, they're pretty close to him. They've heard him belch after a meal. You know, I mean, like, they're close to him. They're good friends. Um, if you've been reading Mark from the beginning, you can see Peter's quandary. Because clearly, Jesus is on the rise. This is the trajectory that Jesus' ministry has been taking all the way along. Momentum is on his side. And even if Peter doesn't know exactly what the Messiah is going to do and how the Messiah is going to do it, he can see victory on the horizon. He can see the kingdom of God coming, the kingdom of God being established. Whatever, however victory is going to be defined by the Messiah, it is on the way because look at this trajectory. Up, up. And away. Jesus. What you just said about dying doesn't fit. Jesus, why would you talk about your death now? Why would you talk about people rejecting you now? Haven't we just answered your question and haven't we just said, look, this is another accomplishment for you. You've, you've convinced us. You've persuaded us. You are the Messiah. Like, let's get word out. Jesus says, no, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. And I'm going to die. And what was it you said about rising again, Peter says? I don't even understand that. I don't even understand that. What's with you? Why aren't you, like, fitting into this story, into this narrative? Why are you such a downer? And so Peter's... Criticism, Peter's questioning, Peter's rebuke of Jesus. Um, I think, for most of us, we would say it seems justified. It makes sense. 
as to why Peter would, would challenge him. Rebuke might be a little strong for us, but at least the idea makes sense. And then Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter back. It's exactly the same word uh, that, that they use. But this was a temptation moment for Jesus. I want you to think about this. This is a temptation moment for Jesus. We think of the temptation of being his time in the wilderness with, with the devil and the, the conflict they have there. And certainly that was. But this is another one. Jesus had a choice that he could buy into Peter's perspective. Jesus could continue to ride this train of success. Or he could stay faithful to his calling. And so Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter. He says, no, Peter, you are wrong. Get behind me, Satan. And I think that get behind me, Satan, is not so much picking on Peter as such as acknowledging the temptation that this is. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And so the temptation is that Jesus put aside God's agenda and defined success in human terms. And Jesus continues on to describe how anyone following him must be all in. It's not just that this trajectory is going to dramatically change, but that if you want to follow me, then you have to be willing to fall off a cliff. And at the bottom of the cliff is a cross. And you have to be prepared for that. Because the 12 up to this point, they only saw good things ahead of them. Right? They could see where this whole Jesus thing was going and they looked forward to it. Now Jesus says, no. We're going to reach a place where we're going to drop off a cliff with a cross at the bottom of it. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Yes, Peter, I am the Messiah, but not the sort of Messiah you're expecting. I'm anointed to serve, even to die. Will you follow me there? You see, Peter faced that moment, faced that choice. Who do you say that I am? And whether it was a red pill or a blue pill, a yes or a no, a Messiah or a prophet, it had consequences. Some of those consequences, Peter had no idea what those consequences were going to be, but he chose the correct, made the correct choice, and when he made the correct choice, the consequence was, you need to be prepared to die. Sooner rather than later. Take up your cross and follow me. In our growth groups this week, we'll, we'll focus on Jesus' transfiguration in chapter 9, and, and if you're following this trajectory, the transfiguration actually is, seems like it's the pinnacle. It seems like the transfiguration is the high point of Jesus' ministry. That Jesus goes up on a mountain, that he turns glowing white, that he meets with Moses, he meets with Elijah, has a conversation. His apostles' disciples see him and recognize it and can witness it. And, and that seems like just the natural trajectory, but in between 
Jesus says, no, you've got to be prepared to give up everything. And it, it just changes the whole landscape of the way that things look. This talk of death and suffering has just been a blip on the radar, it seems, when you get to the Mount of Transfiguration. But from this point on, in Mark, Jesus' death and suffering take an increasingly larger role. From this point, Jesus is walking towards the cross. And whether we know it or not, this is the question that everyone must answer. Who is Jesus? And how we answer it has consequences. Even if you have made that decision many years ago, you still need to make that decision today. Who is Jesus? Who do I, how do I see Jesus? What are the consequences in my life today for the way that I see Jesus. We'd like it to mean that when we answer Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Anointed One, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is the person that I trust my eternity to. We'd like those answers to mean that my life is going to have an upward trajectory. We'd like that, wouldn't we? But if we choose Jesus, not just as the Messiah, but as my Messiah, as my Lord, my Savior, then we should always also recognize that it will cost us something. And it may cost you something different than it costs the person sitting next to you. That what the price you pay for following Jesus may be different than the price the person next to you pays. And so I think it's very easy in our culture to get to a place where we say following Jesus means finding a church where I feel happy, finding a church that I enjoy, finding a church with the best singers, the best seats, the cleanest restrooms. Um, and, and they're all good things, right? As Lawson Road, we try to do well in all of those areas. The most convenient worship times. But, but it's really easy to, to say, my relationship with God is going to be mediated through the place that is most, most comfortable or that makes me feel best, that, that is... Easy, I can just go and I can be blessed. Now, Jesus wants us to be blessed. But Jesus also says, if you want to be my disciple, don't pick up your armchair and move it into the church building. Pick up your cross and hit the road. And so, usually, oftentimes, when we think of cost, we think of money, right? Um, is this a good time to mention that the church budget is available down by the bulletins and you can pick one up on your way, way out? We think of money when we think of cost. But I want to frame it for you a different way. 
I listened to a speaker this week. It was a little of a webinar of some sort. And uh, the speaker said, I heard of a, I have a friend. He's a preacher. And one Sunday, he went to his church and he said, I don't want any volunteers to do anything. I don't want any volunteers to do anything. So they probably, it was a larger church. They had a paid song leader, but they, the praise team was volunteers. So it was just the song leader. There was no greeters at the door. The uh, welcome table didn't have any food or coffee on it. Um, nobody turned the lights on in the auditorium because a volunteer had done that for the past five years. The communion wasn't made. But it was only the people that were paid that did their jobs. And about 10, 15 minutes in, you can imagine the way things were going that day. Because Jesus says, when you make a decision to follow me, you get involved. And he says, oh, you're, you're now part of my body. You're now part of the church. And sure, that doesn't mean you build necessarily go out and build cathedrals, but you get involved in the lives of one another because you have these connections. And you work together to follow me. You work together to, to bear witness to me. And, and so we can measure the cost through the ways that we volunteer. What's a, what's a reasonable number? Do you, do you volunteer an hour a month? I'm going to say to the church. Okay? I know there's lots of ways that we can live out our faith. But you're part of the church. You're part of the body. Do you volunteer an hour a month outside of Sunday morning or Wednesday or just attending a function that benefits and blesses you? You volunteer an hour a month to the church. You go, well, Peter, that's, that's, how can you bring that up? Because that's not what Jesus means when he talks about take up your cross. Jesus is talking about something much more serious than whether or not the lights are on in the auditorium on a Sunday morning. He's talking about something much more serious than standing by the front door and shaking hands with people. He's talking about something much more serious than putting brownies and coffees on a welcome table. And you're right. And yet we get stuck so often and say, I don't have that hour a month to volunteer at the church. How can the church want me to be there on Sunday and come in on a Tuesday night and vacuum or wash windows or do something or do anything? How can the church ask that hour of me extra each month on top of being there on Sunday? And we get stuck at that point. When Jesus said, take up your cross, and we go, that is significant. You're asking me to change my whole life. You're asking me to change my friends. You're asking me to do all this. And we say, yes, that's what Jesus is asking us to do. He might ask you to move, your, move jobs. He might ask you to move cities. He might ask you to speak to people or go to places that make you uncomfortable. He's going to ask you to share the gospel with people that don't know it. Like Jesus is asking for life transformation. Do you give do you volunteer an hour a month to the church? 
Because sometimes we want to skip the little steps and jump to the big steps, right? But we can't do it. It doesn't work that way. And and an hour a month isn't the measuring stick and the elders aren't running around and saying, you've got to do this or you're not a real Christian and not a real follower of Jesus. But, But just think about that. What is your commitment through the church to the body of Christ, to the mission of Christ through the church. Because if we can't do the easy things, if we can't participate in the mission we have here at Lawson Road to change the world for God, then are we really equipped to take up our cross and follow Him? Or is our definition of what church is, of what being a Christian is, what being a disciple is, something different than what Jesus is describing here. Because I think America, Western Christianity, has largely come to define church based on Sunday morning attendance. Uh, To to define Christianity based on Sunday morning attendance. How Christian is your country? Well, what's your attendance at church each given Sunday? So Jesus is asking, are you willing to take risks? to enlarge the kingdom, to spread the good news of the kingdom to your neighbors. But the good news is that Jesus' first mention of his death is also the first mention of his resurrection. Do you see that? And, And so sometimes we can become so caught up on what it's going to cost me. There's as though there's nothing good out there. It's like I went to church today and the preacher told me that I've got to give up an hour a month. Right? Yeah, the preacher did do that. But the preacher also said, when you follow Christ, when he's an important part of your life, when he is the important part of your life, that, that there are blessings that you're a child of God, that you can look forward to new creation, to life beyond death, beyond this one, that the meaning of this life is found not just in this life, but beyond it. That Christ's victory over death is something that we get to experience. That, That living life the way that God wants us to live is a life that brings joy, even in hardship. That the things we give up are nothing compared to the things that we gain. That the change, that the way that we give to other people, God gives much more richly to us. That God, we give them up not because the preacher told us that we need to, but because we recognize that God loves us. That God didn't give up an hour a month for us. God gave up his life for us. And then not because we're guilted into it, but because we're grateful. We say, God, what can I do for you? Because Living in your love is the best place to possibly live life. And so many of us already do and will sacrifice things for Christ in this life. But we look forward to new life, to new creation with Jesus. Jesus told the twelve, don't tell anyone about this. But at the end of Mark, at the end of Matthew, at the end of all the Gospels, he says, go and tell 
everyone about this. God loves us. And so our question today is very simple. What about you? Who do you say that Jesus is and how does that change your life? If you've never answered that question, if you've never said that you want Jesus to to be in charge, to be Lord of your life, to make the changes that that he, uh, to bring your life into harmony with his, then uh, you have that opportunity to do so today. You can talk to myself, the elders, someone here that you trust. And uh, God wants you to experience his love. Let's stand and let's sing together.